Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. Matthew Hambler from Flatlining.net, and with us is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, hi, how are you? I am good, sir. I hope you are as well. I am doing well. Uh, I appreciate everyone that uh, checked out our first Pulse Check on the Candidates program where we talked about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And if you haven't heard it yet, uh, you can check it out now at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to us today. Uh, We've got a number of things we're going to talk about today, including uh, some things going on in the state of California. We like to uh, stay connected with them because we do have a few clients out there. And uh, I think for those of us that live on the East Coast, it's kind of amusing to see what's happening on on the other side of the country where we don't have too much connection. Uh, it always seems to be so different than what we're, we're doing over here. Uh, but first, Ron, I want to talk a little bit about the debt ceiling. It's something we've spent time on, um, and it, we finally had uh, what seems like a deal reached between uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden. Uh, and there's a number of things in that deal, um, but how it relates to healthcare. Uh, talk to, talk to me a little bit about um, what was agreed to uh, over the weekend. Well, I think the first thing is that there's an agreement, and hopefully mm-hmm. it gets through Congress that we avoid, you know, um, two people sitting in a boat and watching it go over the Niagara Falls, so to speak, because um, that's sort of what would have happened. Um, the gist of the deal is that both sides got a little bit of what they wanted and both sides had to give up a lot of what they wanted, which mm-hmm. maybe is the spirit of compromise, something we haven't seen in D.C. in a while. Right. So there are some limits on spending. There's some spending cuts, um, but there isn't the work requirement that the Republicans wanted on Medicaid. Um and so, like I said, it's it's one of those where each side gave up a fair amount, each side got a fair amount, and they reached what is a an agreement in principle on a two-year increase to the debt ceiling, which mm-hmm. is going to be a good thing for the country. Um, the big thing that, that this means is that we don't have to worry about Social Security checks not going out. We don't have to worry about physicians not being paid for um, for the Medicare services that they provide. We don't have to worry about federal employees not being paid. We don't have to worry about the stock market absolutely tanking mm-hmm. um, and the bond market and uh, our credit rating getting downgraded. So all those bad things are sort of behind us as long as now the House and the Senate do their job and get the thing passed. Right. Uh, the work requirements for Medicaid has been a talking point among a lot of conservatives for a while, um, or work requirements on any sort of entitlement programs, but particularly Medicare, excuse me, Medicaid and uh, uh, some of the food stamp programs. It's, it's interesting because that would essentially, obviously, would negate the expansion that we saw in Medicaid after the Affordable Care Act, which might be what the goal is there, is to, to limit some of that expansion. But it's interesting that it always seems to be Medicaid that that's brought up when the majority of people on Medicaid are, are people that um, they cannot work, they're disabled, they're unable to fulfill some of those work requirements. Do you have any particular insight as to why that might be the case, if that's always something that seems to be brought up when they talk about the budget, the debt ceiling, anything along financial lines in Washington? Well, you know, I think depending on which party you're in, there are things that are easy to run on that have become sort of tenants of your party. Um, you know, Medicaid and a lot of other social programs and helping out the the poor and the disenfranchised and the disabled, et cetera, is a, is a plank of the Democrat Party. They, it's what they've run on for quite a while. Um, on the Republican side, you know, 
not having things that appear to be sort of a government handout. Um, this idea that, you know, we shouldn't just pay for people to sit at home. We shouldn't cover their health care. We shouldn't give them extended periods of unemployment. Um, we should, they should at least try to work and try to find a job is sort of a thing that the Republicans have run on for, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time. Um, and what we got here is, is probably where, what I think is when our system works best is sort of something in the middle. So what happened, if you read sort of the gist of what the deal is, is there there aren't work requirements on Medicaid, but there are some potential work requirements on some of the food stamp programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, each side got a little, each side gave up a little. Uh, this is all assuming, of course, that it passes Congress this week. As of this recording, uh, it has not been, uh, I don't believe, introduced in either house. Uh, in Washington. Um, I know some people were complaining that not enough pressure was put on the Senate. And my own take on that is that Democrats in the Senate, for the most part, are going to rubber stamp what the president, you know, approves. If they if the president has agreed to it, the Senate's probably going to go along with it. At least the Democrats will in the Senate. Yeah, I, I think I, I think what we're going to see is there will be some on, on both political parties mm-hmm. in the Senate. There will be some people that are going to be, quote unquote, allowed to either abstain or vote against it. I mean, people Rand who, Paul, for one, on the Republican right. side. Yeah. yeah. And, and it may be people who either because they're going to do that anyway or they are they feel like they're going to be in a difficult race and they need to have that no vote. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be folks, I think, on the on the Democrat side of the Senate. So what you'll end up doing is you'll pass, you'll pass with required votes from both the Democrats and the Republicans and both parties allowing some of their senators to, to vote against it. I think on the House side, you're going to see um, – a contingent of the far left and the far right both vote against it. And it'll be sort of a grouping of both Democrats and Republicans in the center that will get the thing passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's going to pass by more than a really narrow margin because I think it's going to have a fair amount of bipartisan support in both the Senate and the House. And mm-hmm. it's sort of how the system's supposed to work. Yep. Well, uh, we'll have any updates on that in the show notes for this program. You can uh, find them wherever you're listening to us or at flatlining.net. I want to do one other follow-up thing, Ron, uh, because it's something that we've covered on several different occasions. It's something that you've talked about with ProPublica. We had Dr. Hurley on to talk about it. You've talked about it uh, most recently with CARE 11 in Minneapolis, which is... Mm -hmm. Uh, the NBC affiliate where United Healthcare is is headquartered, and uh, it's about denials. And there's an interesting piece that came up today when I was doing the show notes for this program, and it actually uh, it, it it was talking about something else, but it cited an article uh, from 2018 in the Los Angeles Times uh, that talked about uh, uh, the official title of of someone in California who is contracted by Medicaid. Uh, where their, her official title was a denial nurse. And I'm just curious if you, would, if you wouldn't mind elaborating a little bit about um, how some of these other companies are contracted into the Medicaid system and what exactly is a denial nurse. Well, and it's it, this is something that happens not only in just the Medicaid system, but in also the commercial system. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's internal, and there are nurses who work for these companies, for the insurance companies who process prior authorization, referral reviews, and process denials. Or there are some external companies that have sort of become a cottage industry, either to handle these reviews for things like Medicaid, which was brought up in this article, or as the pseudo-external review body 
when uh, a patient gets denied by their insurance company and, and seeks external review. And I say pseudo external review because it's really not an unbiased external review mm-hmm. um, where these things happen. And so, you know, denial nurses are nurses who review these things and then process a, we are, you know, this is not medically necessary. We're not going to pay for it. And that article talked about somebody who did just that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of why this system is so flawed. Yeah. And you were, as part of that CARE 11 interview, they were talking about the patient that uh, that sparked the ProPublica investigation into United Healthcare. They managed to uh, acquire phone calls, phone conversations between executives at United yeah. Healthcare laughing about denying his his ulcerative colitis treatment, um, which we mentioned in the in the Friday Pulse check last week. And it's it's kind of chilling to hear that from an insurance exec- executive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really so... Well, they got it through discovery because of the lawsuit, but it's it's really so, when you think about how this is set up, so disgusting. Um, The the analogy that I was talking to someone else, the analogy I use for how this whole denial system is set up is the big problem is there's a presumed guilt and then the patient has to prove they're innocent, Mm. which is completely backwards to what we normally think. Uh, I've got a good friend of mine whose spouse is in a district attorney's office, prosecutor. And she's got a conviction rate that's close to 100%. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the way the carriers deny something, well, somebody could argue that, well, heck, since, you know, she's right 98% of the time, why don't we just take 98%? Why don't we take 100% of the cases that come before her that she would take to trial and just throw them in jail? Okay. Right. Let's assume guilt because that would be so much more efficient and we would save so much money. And then the ones who are really in- innocent, well, you know, they can probably get out through the appeal process. Mm-hmm. Well, we would never allow that to no, happen, you know, because not. we understand that even one person falsely incarcerated is bad, but that's exactly how the payers work. Right. You know, whether it's the internal United system that was in that or the Cigna system with this computerized PXDX, what they're looking at is saying, well, you know, like the United case, well, very few people with ulcerative colitis really need this kind of a a dosage of medications and combination therapy. So let's just deny all of them that get requested. Mm-hmm. The heck with this kid who, you know, was having his life potentially put in jeopardy. And then what makes it worse is they say, well, don't worry, you can appeal. But the appellant process really is rigged too, because these companies rely on these referrals from the carriers. And so the more that they do the right thing and overturn the carrier, the less referrals they're going to get. Mm-hmm. You even saw in that in that piece where you know, it got sent back to this external review entity at one point and a, and a doctor did approve it. And they called back and said, hey, we don't like that doctor. Can you send it back to the first doctor who right. upheld our denial? That would be a little bit like if the IRS didn't do tax audits and big companies could hire CPA firms to do it for them. Well, guess what? You know, those CPA firms relying on those big companies would probably rule in favor of that big company. So. Right. It's such a horrible system where the patient or the doctor requesting something is guilty until they can prove their innocence. And then it's so hard to prove their innocence, so to speak, in this analogy, because the whole system is rigged. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the part that's, you know, really sort of disgusting. And, 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 and it's I'm easy to fix. It's, it, it would be really, when you think about it, a really easy thing to fix. Um, do two things in this country. We could fix this major problem. First of all, when a doctor signs a denial, they're practicing medicine, 
make a law that says when you sign something and you put MD behind your name and you sign a denial, you are practicing medicine. Once you do that, then all of the things that apply to your doctor when they sign a prescription or order a study or sign a chart note all apply, first mm -hmm. of all. They have to be licensed in the state they're practicing in. Second of all, they have to be practicing within their scope of practice. You know, your internal medicine doctor can't do uh, cardiac bypass surgery. They're not trained to. Right. Third, they have to keep up with continuing medical education credits, so they're up to date on the most common things. And finally, they can be held responsible for those decisions, mm -hmm. i.e. malpractice. Okay. With that one change, and you watch doctors stop signing 200 denials a day because they yeah. know they can be held responsible. Yep. Second thing, make the external review process truly unbiased and external. Have the state set it up, have it paid through a small tax on insurance companies, and then it's truly an external unbiased thing, much like the IRS sits outside of the company and can review their taxes. Mm -hmm. You do those two things, this whole problem goes away. Yep. A little bit of regulation goes a long way in, in instances yeah. like this. Uh, and we'll keep sharing stories like Dr. Hurley's, like the patient that was mentioned in the CARE 11 interview, uh, and, and more here on Flatlining and at flatlining.net. Hi there. Thanks for checking out the Flatlining podcast. If you like this program and the content you're listening to, do us and your fellow healthcare workers a favor. Subscribe to the show on this platform and share it with your friends. We're quickly growing thanks to you, and we want to help more and more physicians and practice managers stay up to date on the most pressing issues in healthcare. So subscribe and share the program with your friends and colleagues, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Ron, the main thing I want to talk about today is California, uh, because it's a little bit foreign to us living on the East Coast, but... Uh, it's always fun to talk about because their governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, has lots of things to say about health care. And in fact, it's what he's not doing about health care that's got him mad uh, or got Democrats in his state mad. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But first, as we mentioned in the Friday Pulse check last week, there is a potential pay boost coming to the Medi-Cal program. Uh, Medi-Cal is the state's Medicaid program, and like many state Medicaid programs, it pays well below Medicare. And I guess that's going to be my first question for you, Ron, is how do those um, Medicaid fee schedules get set? Because the states get money from the federal government, they get money from their own taxes to pay for this health care program. So who sets the Medicaid fee schedules? Well, the states themselves do. Uh, and you're right, it varies. Um, now, there isn't a state out there where Medicaid is a good payer, mm -hmm. but it varies on how much below Medicare it is. So the states themselves set those budgets. They set those fee schedules. Um, and, and, you know, many states, California included, are starting to have some significant issues around access because the budgets are the fees are so low that many physicians and mental health providers are just choosing not to to see those patients or to see very few of those patients. So therein mm -hmm. lies the problem. And that's the reason why Medi-Cal is looking at a potential pay bump. Um, right now for primary non-specialty, uh, primary care and non-specialty mental health, a lot of those range in California between 70 and 100% of Medicare. Is that typical to see 70 to 100% for those and then 60 to 70% for maternity care? Yeah, that's fairly typical. Okay. Um, you know, the... 
some of the best states as far as reimbursement are still about 90% of Medicare and Medicare is not a good payer. Um, mm-hmm. So yep. um, yeah, that's fairly typical to be in that sort of range. When you say the best states, what states are we talking about for Medicaid? Medicaid? Well, so usually the states where the Medicaid reimbursement is a little bit better tend to be the states without major uh, metropolitan areas. I mean, California, you know, has LA Mm -hmm. and San Francisco, et cetera. New York has New York City and, you know, Illinois has Chicago, et cetera. So the rural states are the states where population is more spread out. And the reason is that, um, you know, if you pay fairly well for Medicaid, that increases the cost of the state budget. Um, and so a lot of those states with pretty high major population area also have pretty high Medicaid rolls. And so they, they can't pay that much. Mm-hmm. Now, this reporting is coming from uh, the Press Democrat and uh, one of the newspapers out in California. And they're talking about for a, a typical ENM code, Medicare pays about $108 in San Francisco, while Medi-Cal pays $68. So you've right. got a pretty big discrepancy there. And as we've talked about before, it's one of the reasons why commercial insurance is so much higher. It's because it has to subsidize for those, uh, I would almost say, absurdly low rates uh, being paid for by Medicaid. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, your commercial premiums are, it's a hidden tax. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, they have to pay more because of what the government does pay. So it's just a, it's a way to transfer tax onto employer groups um, through their insurance coverage. The other thing that's really, to me, interesting to think about when you think of it from an economic perspective about this, a lot of these physicians who are seeing these patients at, you know, 68 bucks for a visit where Medicare could pay them 100 and where non-Medicare might pay them 120 Right. Okay. A lot of these physicians doing that could fill up all those patient roles if they didn't see Medicaid at all. They do it because they're physicians and they were trained to care for everybody who needs their services. Mm-hmm. It's a lousy business decision, okay? Yeah. And one that in almost no other industry would be made. Can you imagine walking into an Apple store? And I'm just picking on Apple because it's a product. But mm-hmm. And somebody's saying, hey, look, we've got these government vouchers that these people are going to come in and they're going to be able to buy a laptop. Now, they're not going to pay retail. As a matter of fact, they're not even going to pay wholesale. They're going to pay you below the cost to produce the laptop. Mm-hmm. Laughter would ensue. And Apple as a for-profit company would say, well, then they don't get a laptop. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. they damn sure don't get an iPhone and right. they don't get it, you know, because what company would sell their product below cost when other people would buy the product at a profit margin? Well, that's really what physicians do every day. And somebody asked me one time, you know, why does Medicare and Medicaid get away with paying so low? And the answer is because physicians let them. Right. Because they still they still sell their service for that. Um and that's that, you know, they play on the on the good nature, if you will, and the social mission of physicians. But in, in almost any other service or product, I mean, try walking into a nice restaurant and saying, I want to pay, you know, a 40 percent discount. And I know that's below your cost of producing that meal. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get fed. Right. You know. Well, and and as we talked about a little bit at the beginning um, with the work requirements that some of the Republicans wanted to tack on to Medicaid, it's this is the the program for people who for the most of them can't work. A lot of them are permanently disabled. Some of them are dual eligible for Medicaid and Medicare. And in that instance, it's some of the people that need the health care the most yeah. compared to, you know, your average fully insured person through their employer. Yeah. And um, there's there is a real sense of mission there from physicians for wanting and needing to see uh, some of these patients. And 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 don't get me wrong. 
are there waste and abuse and inefficiencies in the Medicare and Medicaid system? Absolutely there mm-hmm. are. Sure. And, and we should try to get at those. But you're also right that there, you know, we a long time ago in this country decided that we wanted to take care of our poor and our elderly, which are not bad things to want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this is about, is taking care of our poor and our elderly. Uh, one of the things that they're talking about for the Medi-Cal program is it's going to bump up um, uh, reimbursement for maternity care, primary care, and non-specialty mental health care up to 87.5% of Medicare rates. Um, does that get in? Do you think that's enough to, to save the program, to save their network? Um, or do you think that they need to go higher in order to keep more physicians uh, granted, California is a huge state. They've got a lot of physicians comparatively to a place like Alaska. But um, is, is that enough to, to save the program? Um, well, I think it's a balancing act for them. Um, they're never going to get it high enough to make all of the providers and all the health systems really want to see all the Medicaid members. Um, they're trying to get it high, just high enough to where there is some amount of a network. And I think getting up to 87.5 will help. Um, and to be honest with you, the people who stay in the, in the network for that amount of money probably would have stayed anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a step in the right direction. It's not, you know, covering costs yet, but, um, but it helps to keep it pulled together. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk economics for a little bit, uh, because California famously runs a deficit quite a bit, and that has been a topic in their state legislature, uh, of debate quite frankly. And um, one of the things that they're talking about with this program is they're going to add a new tax um, for called the Managed Care Organization Tax. And the Press Democrat says it's going to allow the state to impose a per-member tax on Medi-Cal insurance plans and on commercial plans. It's expected to bring in about $19.4 billion to the state between April of 2023 uh, through the end of 2026, and about $11 billion of that will be used to pay for provider reimbursement. Is a new tax the way to make this work? Um, or, I mean, obviously you've got to balance it somehow. You have to get the money from somewhere. Um, is this kind of tax on the insurance and commercial, the Medi-Cal plans and the commercial plans, uh, the right answer? Well, um, it's a little risky um, because you can tax yourself out of a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the reality is it, it probably they probably need to approach it both from a trying to reduce spending as well as sort of increase tax revenue to deal with their deficit. Um, but that's hard because what, you know, what governor Newsom and everybody who gets elected to public office understands is the promises you had to make to get there. People actually want you to do them. Um, and they remember mm-hmm. them. And some of those yep. promises were really hard to do, like promising free healthcare to everybody. Um, and so you you get an office, and then you're like, "Crap! Well, now I I have to deal with this whole deficit problem." The the thing that makes me nervous about what California is doing is, and I saw something on the news the other day, and a different scenario, but it it, it plays the same. Um, State Farm, large insurer, mm-hmm. made an announcement they are not writing any new homeowners policies in the state of California because the risk of fire damage is too great. Actuarially, it doesn't make sense. Hmm. So hmm. State Farm, a massive insurance yep. company, is taking our most populated state and going, nah, I don't think so because I don't think I can make money there. What happens if the commercial carriers 
um, you know, the, the folks who offer to either small employers, I'm not talking about self-funded ERISA stuff, but small employers or the Medi-Cal, Medicaid providers say, you know what, after we look at these taxes, we just can't make money. And what happens if they start pulling out mm-hmm. and saying, um, I, I'm just not going to sell in that marketplace. That could be really detrimental to the employees, employers there and to the consumers. And before somebody says, well, they would never do that, I'd remind people that when the Affordable Care Act first came out and these exchanges first came in, so many of the insurance companies, the Aetna Cygnus United of the world, were so nervous about the risk that they presented that they offered in very few locations. They just turned their nose up to this, in you know, this brand new market. Mm-hmm. So the idea that insurance companies will always sell their product everywhere doesn't exist. And that's what makes me nervous about this. Let's just bump this tax up and let's do this and that. Because what happens the day that you do all these things and the people that you want to buy from suddenly go, eh, I'm out. Right. And uh, th- to make that point even further, there's a number of places in the country, even in North Carolina, where there's only one plan available yeah. in the the exchange even today. Uh, right. Although, funnily enough, as we're talking about California, Bright Health, uh, their last remaining plan is still in California. That's the one they're trying to sell still. Uh, yep. which just uh, just another interesting thing about California right now. Uh, I mentioned a little bit about the governor uh, at the beginning of this segment, and um, one of the interesting things that Kaiser Health News does is they follow uh, California pretty closely, and it's in part because they're based out there. And they had an interesting piece this week about the governor who vowed when he was elected to reinstate the individual mandate in California Um, after it was removed by a federal judge uh, from the Affordable Care Act. Uh, He got it through the legislature in exchange for allowing those funds to be used uh, to help lower out-of-pocket costs for Californians purchasing health care in their state exchange. However, he has not done that, and he's starting to annoy Democrats with that. Um, And apparently he's raised, um, since 2020, over a billion dollars, which is now sitting in the state's general fund, uh, and Democrats aren't happy. As as many of you know, he's also tried to push um, a kind of a Medicare for all for California, uh, which has not made it through the state legislature. He's obviously got presidential aspirations. So I guess, Ron, starting with that, I'll just throw it over to you with your initial thoughts on um, where Gavin Newsom sits right now with his own party in California. Well, he sits in a unenviable position, and it's partly that the promises you make to get there, people are going to want you to 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 deal with Mm -hmm. and to fulfill. The other problem he has is this. Um, He's got a deficit. He's got to try to fix it. Well, there's a billion dollars that he can help plug that hole with. It's not enough, but it helps um, by taking the money out of this, you know, this idea that, um, you know, we'll take this money and then reduce the cost of healthcare. The other issue he's got is if he actually used the money the way he promised to, California becomes a more advantageous state to get healthcare in because it's cheaper mm-hmm. if you don't make much money. Well, that's not the people you want to attract to your state because they also don't produce tax revenue and they also might qualify for other social programs. So, you know, you don't want a state to have a bunch of people that, you know, make just enough money not to qualify for Medicaid, but qualify for the ACA. Right. Um, uh, subsidies because they don't pay any tax revenue. That makes your deficit even worse. So he's got this weird balancing act. He's got people telling him that, hey, the right financial thing to do is to plug the hole and to not make healthcare um, 
more affordable in your state because that's a bad thing economically. But that goes contrary to what you promised your own party and how to get here. So, you know, I wouldn't have his job right now for all the money in the world because he's in a tough catch-22. Um, and he's trying to politically navigate his way out of it as, as best he can. California, like a lot of other places, uh, is seeing rising premiums and rising deductibles uh, in their state exchange. Um, their mid-tier plan, the deductible will jump to $5,400 next year, and that's up from 3702 years ago. Is that on par with other states around the country? It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're seeing increases on the exchanges just like we're seeing increases in the cost of Starbucks and the gas pump. And I mean, we are in an inflationary period right now um, and healthcare isn't, you know, isn't immune to that. So we're, you know, we're seeing that in a lot of areas and, you know, that's one of the things he's got a real problem with. Um, A lot of people in this country, especially people on the exchanges, because you remember most of the people on those exchanges have a job, but, uh, it's a job that doesn't make enough money to really offer right. them great insurance. Mm-hmm. And they can't afford a $3,000 deductible, let, let alone a $5,000 deductible. Right. Um, and so it's it's a population that really has a hard time paying that bill. Um, but again, his other alternative is to try to use that money to drive those deductibles down, which will attract even more people into his state and leave him with a bigger hole in his deficit, which he's got to fix. Right. I, I do find it interesting that he's managed to keep the individual mandate in his state. Obviously, it's through a state tax rather than a federal tax. Um, so I, I was assuming then it would it has to be legal if they've allowed it to go on this long without uh, without that much challenge. Um, but on the one hand, aren't you the people who can't afford the health care? Are, are you penalizing them by simply putting this tax on them for not purchasing health care? Or is the answer that it's cheaper to pay the tax than it is to try and buy the insurance? Well, a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 clearly legal. I mean, the individual mandate, the problem with the individual mandate um, got Federal resolved rate. by the Supreme Court right. at the federal level. Um, and then basically when the Trump administration got rid of it. So it was it was legal. And it's definitely legal on the state because it's a tax. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they didn't call it a tax in the ACA, that's what Justice Roberts said. is that It's a tax. And, right. and of course, the government could tax. Um, and it's clearly a lot less expensive to pay the tax than to buy insurance if you don't want to. Um, for that matter, the penalty on the employer side, if you're an employer over 50 employees mm-hmm. um, and you don't offer insurance, there's a there's a penalty that the employer has to pay. That's significantly less expensive than actually offering insurance for all your employees. So these taxes or penalties, you know, are are nothing compared to the actual cost of of what the alternative would be. So in, in one sense, if you're trying to incentivize people to get on a health care plan, you really got to make it hurt to not do that. But it seems it's obviously it's quite difficult to do that. And then you're dealing with the, the problem with some people that can't afford the care as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the individual mandate or the employer penalty is not enough to really change somebody who either can't or doesn't want to buy insurance. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a small amount compared to what the insurance cost is. Do you think this spat with his party in California is going to hurt um, Newsom's presidential aspirations for 2020, let's see, 2028 if, well, I'm assuming if Biden wins re-election or if he doesn't win re-election, that's probably when he'll run. Do you think this will hurt his aspirations for that? No, I don't think this one will. I mean, you know, first of all, um, 
I don't think he could anger the Democratic Party in California enough to have California not vote Democrat. Right. I mean, uh, you know, that that state's going to vote going to vote Democrat sort of regardless. Um, I also don't think that the California problem hurts him from a national perspective, um, to be honest. And, and I don't know that this is part of the calculus and what he's doing. This idea of drifting a little bit towards the middle and not being for Medicare for all or universal health care, socialized medicine, all that stuff. He probably has to do anyway if he has presidential aspirations, mm-hmm. because, you know, right now and and. And I, I take Bernie Sanders as my example. Bernie's proven that you, you can't win an election if you're for universal health care or Medicare for all. Right. It's an unpopular in the general, which is why Bernie hasn't even been able to win his party's nomination. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Gavin may be looking at this going, hey, I got to drift a little bit towards the center anyway if I want to do a, a national bid. Right. And if someone tries to bring up that, well, you tried to do it, you could back off and say, yeah, exactly. I thought I could do it. And I learned that it wouldn't work in the state of California. And we did X, Y, Z to make, you know, we re- we upped reimbursement for Medi-Cal and, and expanded yeah. Medi-Cal so more people could get on our, our Medicaid program. Yeah. I mean, you just look at, look at um, you know, uh, people tried to beat Romney about the head and face with the fact that, you know, mm-hmm. he at one point said he was very proud of what he did for healthcare reform in Massachusetts. And then when he got onto a national stage said, you know, we've got to repeal the Affordable Care Act when yep. he was running. And so, yep. you know, he had to do much the same thing. And Lord knows we've seen enough politicians change their position on something, yes. you know, when they get into a national spotlight mm-hmm. versus versus a, a state spotlight that, you know, it's almost expected. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Uh, I know that we could probably expect to see, uh, a, I think, a Newsom-DeSantis uh, race would probably be the most entertaining right now because they're both, I think, about the same age and they have both about the same um, punching level at, at each other that I think they could they could hold up against each other in a debate. But we'll see. And if that happens, we'll tell you about it here on the Flatlining Podcast. Ron, thanks a lot. Thank you. Make sure you're subscribed to the Flatlining Podcast so you never miss an episode, including our new series, Pulse Check on the Candidates. More details on that are available at flatlining.net. Just click Election 2024. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.